Um, I'm so eager with you to gather around the scripture. Uh, we're going to be gathered around the word of God. I invite you to look at Matthew 19. We're going to be verses 16 through 30. And uh, before I get into this story, I want to talk to you about another story. As I was preparing, I came across uh, this commentator who had a very interesting insight. He said that this uh, portion of scripture really reminded him to a section in the book, Alice in Wonderland. Now, have you ever read the book, Alice in Wonderland? I think it's a very clever book. Maybe we've seen the movie. Maybe you have seen the animated version. Few of us have read the book. But in Alice in Wonderland, uh, in the book, Alice chases the white rabbit. You remember that? She sees it. She chases it. And she almost has it. And just before she reaches it, the white rabbit disappears around a corner. And she's been so focused on chasing this rabbit that she didn't really realize where she had run. She kind of tunnel visioned on the rabbit. And she looks up and Alice finds herself in a very long hallway. It's kind of an eerie hallway. It has a very low ceiling. There seemed to be an, an endless amount of doors on either side of this hallway. And Alice began to try to find a door leaving this kind of dingy hallway and every door she tried, one after the other, was all locked and soon a sense of panic began to set in for Alice. How was she going to get out of this dark place with its low ceilings and its endless locked doors? And uh, just when she was about hopeless, she came upon a small round glass coffee table. And as she looked upon the table, there was a single golden key, a small little golden key. And so what do you think you would do if you're in Alice's position? If she sees this key, she begins to take the key to each door and furiously tries to see if it will unlock any of the doors. But strange thing is, is the, the key is undersized. It just it feels way too small to be paired with any of the locks on any of these doors. And, and so for Alice, a sense of dread begins to set in. And it was about this time that, that Alice noticed a small little curtain on the wall. And wondering what it might be, she went up to the curtain and, and moved to the side to reveal a tiny little door. And once you know it, when she tried the key on this door, it opened right up. And Alice looked down the, the passage of, that the tiny door had, and she could see that it led to a beautiful garden. And unfortunately, the passage was, it was no bigger than her head. And, and no matter what she wanted, no matter how much she longed to be out there, she couldn't escape. And she returned somewhat discouraged to the little round table where she found the key. But now on the table there was a bottle, had some sort of liquid in it, and it had a little label that said, drink me. And Alice checked for any signs that the bottle may be poisoned. I don't know how you do that. Maybe you smell it. I don't know what poison smells like. Uh, maybe you taste a little bit, but, but she tasted it and found it to be sweet, and she drank the whole bottle. And something began to happen to Alice, something amazing. She began to shrink until she was only 10 inches high, the perfect height for her to escape through the tiny door and flee from the dark hallway into the lovely garden. Now, why do I tell you this story? I believe that it is an amazing illustration for our text today. I think it will help you understand this encounter that Jesus has with person here identified as a rich young man. Uh, this, this, I think this rich young man is a man who finds himself stuck like Alice was in the hallway. He's lost, if you will, and he can't find a way to get where he needs to go. And, and so I think you might just hear this story today and you might just see yourself in the same situation. You know where you want to go, you just can't fit through the doorway. Hopefully this will all make sense as we unfold our scripture together. We're going to be reading from Matthew 19, 16 through 30. I invite you who are able to stand now in reverence of the word of God. Read. 
Before we read together, let's pause and have a moment of prayer. Father, you are good, and you give to us many a good gift. And today we read from your scripture, which is in of itself a great gift for us. I pray now that you would give us another gift, that you would give to us the gift of understanding that comes by your Holy Spirit, that we might understand what Jesus is revealing to us. We pray this in, in his name, and all the church said, amen. All right, we begin the 16th verse, read with me. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, or he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Church, the grass may wither and the flowers may fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever, and this is the word of our God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's see if we can work our way through this text, beginning in verse 16. And behold, a man came to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Uh, it's a very interesting and telling question. This man is concerned, obviously, by the nature of the question. He's concerned about his own death. Specifically, he's probably, you could tell it here, he's concerned about what happens after his death. Have any of you ever been concerned about your death and what happens after your death? This man was a Jew. He had grown up with Jewish parents, and he had heard about heaven and everlasting life. And so uh, now he comes to Jesus to find out what he must do to earn that. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have everlasting life? It's great that, that he comes to Jesus with this question. That's a good thing. But his question exposes that this man does not understand. He's focused on good deeds. He's focused on living forever. What he doesn't realize is that all people will be resurrected. Did you know this? That at the end of days when Christ returns, all will be resurrected and all people will live forever. But where you spend eternity 
is truly what's at stake. Our hope is that when we are resurrected, we will be uh, in glory with Jesus. And you cannot get there by doing good deeds. And so the question he asked Jesus is fundamentally flawed in its nature. Look what, how Jesus responds to him, verse 17. And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. So Jesus says two things. First, he says, why do you ask me about what's good? There's only one who's good. Who is that? That is, that is God, right? It's weird for us to think that nobody is good, right? And uh, I, I think we like to think that, that we have friends and those, those are good people. I'll often, I'll often be talking about somebody and I'll be describing them to somewhere, someone else and I'll go, you know what? I like him. He's a good dude. You know, or, or she's a good lady. You ever, I mean, that's a natural language, but I'm not making a statement of their moral goodness. Because what Jesus says in Scripture is that no one is truly morally good except for God. And if you want to disagree with me, one of the things we have to determine is what's the standard, right? Who gets to set the standard? Uh, what, what Scripture says is, is that someone's morally good when they keep the law as revealed in Scripture. For you to do one good deed, this is what has to happen. You must conform your behavior with God's law. Not only that, but you also must have, when you're doing it, a heart that loves the Lord. Because you cannot, according to the biblical de definition of the word, you cannot do a good work without love of God in your heart. And so what you have to do, if you want to earn heaven through moral behavior, is that you have to, for your entirety of your life, have every action always conform with scripture and always do it with a heart that loves God. And if you can do that, then you can earn your own salvation. But I gotta tell you, don't be a fool, it's impossible. And Jesus is really trying to explain this impossibility of moral perfection to this rich young man. He says, first, he says, Why, you know, no one's good but God. And then he says, if you, okay, then you want to play this game? If, if you want to do something to enter eternal life, just, just try, with, try to keep the commandments for a little bit, right? And, and the man decides he needs clarification. So he, he asks Jesus, look at verse 18 and 19. He says, uh, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is going back to the Ten Commandments, right? And uh, most of you know the Ten Commandments, at least you've heard of them. And, and mo most of you know, or some of you do, that, that the Ten Commandments are kind of broken into two groupings. Sometimes we call those groupings tables. And the first table of Ten Commandments, of the Ten Commandments, is about uh, laws that deal with how we react or respond or relate to God. And the second table has to do with how we uh, have relationships with others. And so what Jesus does is he goes, he could have used any of the Ten Commandments and exposed this rich young man's sins. But for some reason, Jesus decides to go to the second table of the Ten Commandments, those about how we relate to others, and talk to him there about his sin. Uh, he, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not Commit false witness, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. And, and if you rightly understood these, especially as Jesus has been preaching them uh, in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, um, people thought they were righteous because they had not murdered. And what did Jesus say? Like, if you have anger in your heart, you're guilty of the sin of murder. And then people thought they were innocent because they had not committed adultery. And he said, what, what did he say? If you have lust in your heart, then you committed adultery. And so these are supposed to expose you. They're supposed to be, uh, the law is supposed to show you that you're a sinner who cannot keep it. 
And, and what, what's God said, or what's Jesus just said? He said, no one's good but Jesus. And what does this man turn around and say? Verse 20. Then the young man said to him, all these things that I've kept, what do I still lack? In other words, this guy's saying, he's so delusional, he said, he thinks he's righteous still. He just said, no one's good but God. He goes, well, but me too, right? If the God, if the law of the God of, of God is laid out before you, excuse me, and your response to that law being laid out is, yep, I do all that, what else do you got? Then you're a fool. The very purpose of the law is to show you that you're a sinner in need of Jesus. It's supposed to break you. You understand that? That's, that's one of the purposes of the law is to break you of self-righteousness. And here's the rich young man. He says, I got it. What else you got, Jesus? Uh, I don't know if, you, if, if you're really familiar with the Ten Commandments. You recognize at this point is that although he went to the second table of the law, he left the last commandment out. Do you know what the Tenth Commandment is? Thou shall not covet. And here's the brilliance of Jesus. This, is, this, this thou shall not covet is the one that he's going to use to really show this man that he is a sinner. Jesus knows the heart of all men, but he knows that this man in particular suffers with coveting. Uh, you know, that's a strange word, coveting. It means kind of this idea of uh, the passion of wanting things that other people have, desiring all the different things in the world. Jesus is putting his finger on this man's core problem, his love for money and all the things that it brings. The man says, you know, basically, yeah, I've kept all those laws. What else you got? And what does Jesus say to him? You know what else I've got? Thou shalt not covet. Look at this, verse 21. And Jesus said to him, okay, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. If you would be perfect, sell it, get rid of it, give it to the poor and come and follow me, sell it all. So, so the questions that we need to deal with are what, what are the standards for entering the kingdom of heaven? It's, it's moral perfection as defined by the law. How do you handle a man who comes to you and mistakenly thinks he has moral perfection if you're Jesus? You have to show him those parts of the law that he will hate, those parts of the law that cut him to the core, the ones that, that demand more than he's capable to pay and ask more than he's willing to give. Only then will he see that he's a sinner. You see, as long as you think that you are morally perfect, you will never follow Jesus in the way necessary to find salvation. So in a sense, this is not as much about material wealth as it is about recognizing spiritual poverty. You think you're perfect? Look at the way you covet. Look at the way you hoard that money. If you want moral perfection, you've got to give all that away. And so the question of the day, I think this is a very important question, and one in which a lot of preachers and commentators have to deal with when they come to this text. And the question is, is this instruction of Jesus to go and sell everything this man owns and give it to the poor and come and follow him, is that an instruction for every rich man? And just so you know, I group most of you in that category. Right? You, you really are. You may think that there's one or two rich people in here today, but the truth is that in, if we compare our income and our money to, to the rest of history and to the rest of, of, of the world throughout history, like no one's got the, the, the income that we have and the toys that we have. I mean, even rich people back in Jesus' day didn't have what a middle-class family has now. 
So, so the question is, does this apply to us? So that, and I guess my answer to you would say that, that it depends. Some of you find, uh, find your identity, find your comfort, and really a sense of idolatry in your wealth. You go to bed at night and you sleep well, not because God is sovereign and rules over all things and holds us together and tomorrow he will take care of you. Rather, you sleep well because you have enough money in your 401k to make you feel secure. The problem with some of our hearts is we trust in money. You know, somewhere after the Civil War, some faithful Christians trying to do good to start to place a little reminder on the money because they knew that this was the nature of our hearts. Like they want to put a little reminder on our money, a little statement which is now irrelevant to most of the country. And, but to the believer, it should always be a warning to us. And, and the little statement that, that's there on our money says this, in God we trust. Isn't it funny that, that people trust in the dollar so much that we had to put, no, don't do it, trust in God, and yet we still can't figure out how not to do this? Two things are true here. Um, one is that this man is not perfect and that Jesus is showing him his sin. And the man's core problem was his love for money. The man's desi he desires everlasting life. He's asking about deeds that are going to make him worthy. He doesn't get it. He's like, what, what deeds can I do? And, and Jesus has to show him the impossibility of his request. And, and, and here's where the comparison to Alice in Wonderland comes in a little bit, right? You see this rich young man is like our illustration and that he keeps running around with that, that little key that won't unlock any of the doors. Good deeds, they just don't, they won't get him anywhere. They just don't seem to unlock any of the doors. They're too small uh, for, for the locks that there that keep him out. The only key that will work is total, complete, moral perfection, which he doesn't have, you don't have, and I don't have. Look at verse 22 through 25. Read it with me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Why does the rich man go away sorrowful? Well, it's because he sees his wealth as more precious than the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus, in turn, he turns to his disciples after he leaves, and it's time to teach again. Jesus is going to teach his disciples, and he's going to use hyperbole. Now, let me answer a question first. I think there's, there's an often used sermon illustration that, that suggests that there is a gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle, and, and they, they kind of tell this story where there was a camel, they bring a camel in and the camel has to kneel to go through it. And it's a wonderful illustration other than the fact that we can find no historical fact that any of it's true, right? But other than that, it's beautiful, right? Just probably not historically accurate. It's more possible, more probable that Jesus is using hyperbole here. What's the biggest animal he could think of in the region? Probably camel. What's the smallest opening he could think of that would be ironic? The eye of the needle. So what does Jesus say? Does he say, um, man, it is impossible, will never happen for, for a camel to go through the eye of the needle? No, he says it's with great difficulty, right? The idea is that if you're rich, you have such a temptation to place your trust in, in not the Lord, but in money. 
But I need to say something else here. Is money, is, is richness, is that inherently sinful? And is, is being poor, is that in some way an act of righteousness? Because I think that's what some people fall into the trap of thinking, that, that to be rich is to be unrighteous, and to be poor is to be righteous. Well, I want to suggest to you that it's just not that black and white in the Word of God. Think about it. Some people are poor because they're slothful and lazy, while others are poor because they're taken advantage of. Quite a difference there. Some people are poor because disasters which are outside their control have taken the resources of their family, while others are poor because they've squandered all that God has given them. Yes, Scripture does encourage me and you to, to help the poor, but it doesn't say that poor people are, are somehow morally righteous or morally better than rich people, right? In the same way, if we were to talk about rich people, we would say that people are rich for a lot of different reasons, right? Some people are rich because they are industrious and they're hardworking, while others are rich because they uh, are crooked and they have stolen and taken advantage of people. Some people are rich because they are thrifty and save, and some people are rich because they've received an inheritance. But richness itself is not a moral deficiency. You know, a guy that I like to read a lot, and I quote a lot to you probably, is Dr. R.C. Sproul. He says something like this. The Bible has nothing but approval for industry, productivity, and stewardship. Right? These are good things. They're, they're actually virtues that carry with them the blessing of God. But if you are rich, and many of you are, just know that, you have some unique challenges. Now listen, I, 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 this is the best way I can explain this. I'm not even sure it's a good way, but I'm going to try it. The best way I can explain this is to, is to think about what it must be like to be born crazy attractive. Like crazy handsome, right? Like, like imagine what that would be like. Uh, for some of you, it's going to be really hard. Um, and listen, I'm no horse face, but I'm no Brad Pitt. You know what I mean? I know, I know who I am, I, I think. But can you imagine if, if, if you were Brad Pitt or if you had a face like that, you would have some unique challenges if you were that handsome, right? The pride that you would have. The temptation to use your attractiveness to lure women into ungodly encounters. Like, that would just be a great temptation. And I think that you could probably find someone who would say it's harder for a handsome man to get into heaven than for a camel to get into the eye of a needle. Uh, you know, and, and then you might say to yourself, oh, thank God for this big nose and receding hairline, right? Because you just don't have that temptation. But this man's issue in the story, it's not handsome, it's, it's wealth. The temptation that's unique to him and to us is to, is to trust our money. You know, when people lived by the field, when they had to work and, 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 and they didn't know where they would get their next meal, there just was a nature to go to the Lord and say, God, please provide my daily bread. And for us who have years worth of money in our savings accounts, we just don't turn to God to ask him to provide lunch tomorrow. We trust in something else. When Jesus shows that this man's sin disqualify him from opening the door to, it, to eternal life, when he, says, when he shows them that, the disciples, they're, they're shocked. And do you remember what, what the disciples say? They said, who then can be saved? If moral perfection is the standard, we're all doomed. Peter is a hothead, right? 
Thomas is a doubter. Even the disciples realize that they don't, like Alice, they don't have the key to open the door to eternal life. Who can be saved? Look at verse 26. This is what Jesus says. But Jesus said, uh, looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You see, man by his righteousness cannot open the door to eternal life. Jesus says it's impossible. Why? Because we don't have moral perfection. Scripture says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The key to opening the door of eternal life, that key that you're looking for, it's moral perfection. You have to get to the place where you realize you are too big to enter the tiny door. It's impossible. So what is the magic elixir that makes it so that we can go through the tiny door into the kingdom of God? It's funny to think about that tiny door. You know why that makes such a good illustration is because in Matthew 7, he says this, small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only few find it. And Peter, he, he's, he's talking to the Lord and in verse 27, he says, look at that with me. He says, Peter, Peter said in reply, Lord, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then are we going to have? Do you see what Peter's saying? I hope you do because it's really, it's really beautiful. He's saying we've believed in you. We've given up everything in our lives that gets in the way of following you. And there are plenty of things in your life that get in the way of following the Lord. And, and he's saying we've left all that, all that hinders behind. And I don't know if you see what this is, but, but, I, but I see what it is. It's, it's the parable of great value, of the pearl of great value. You know the parable of the pearl of great value? It's, it's Matthew 13, 45 and 46. Look what it says. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and he bought it. This is, this is true faith. This is what happens when the Spirit works in you. True, true saving faith means you put everything behind you and you trust in Jesus and that you allow nothing to impede your obedience to Christ. And, and if you remember what he's been saying in Matthew, he says, like if your eye causes you to sin, what do you do? You gouge it out. And if your hand causes you to sin, what do you do? You cut it off. And if your wealth causes you to sin, what do you do? You give it away. Because you found the pearl of great value. What is the pearl? Man, it is Jesus Christ. How beautiful he is. He is God incarnate. He is, he is the son of God. He is the unblemished lamb. Friends, let your hearts linger upon worshiping Christ this morning. Everything else fails in comparison to the value of Christ. The great end of our, of our, of our preaching and what, what we do when we worship Christ is, when our songs, we know that the chief end is the worship of Christ. Do you know that also in preaching the chief end and listening to sermons, the chief end is saying, glory be to you, Christ. You are, you're all worthy of all things. Um, and so in conclusion, uh, you know, what, what does Jesus say back to Peter? And Peter says, we've left it all behind. Uh, we, we followed you. What does Jesus say? Look at verses 28 and 29. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, the heavens and the new earth, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, that there is some rule of the disciples along with Jesus. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. 
this sermon, this section, it started with a question from a rich man. Remember that question? What deeds will get me eternal life? And it ended here with this response to the disciples. Everyone who's left houses or family or lands for my sake will inherit eternal life. And, and you might be thinking to yourself, like, that sounds like deeds too. But I, I want to suggest to you that that's not. That's faith. It's the outcome of faith. Those who have put off all that hinders and have trusted in Christ alone find salvation. The only key that opens the door is moral, moral perfection. The only person that has moral perfection is Jesus. Your only hope is that Jesus will give to you his moral perfection and that he will take from you your guilt and shame. And that only happens when you leave everything else behind and you put your trust in him. We call that faith. Faith is that magic elixir which makes it so that you can fit through that narrow door that has no space for your sin. Faith is what happens when you discover the pearl of great value and you sell everything you own to acquire it. Faith is the disciples leaving everything behind to follow Jesus. Faith is cutting off your hand because it causes you to stumble or giving away your wealth because it threatens your soul. The call of Christ is to deny yourself to pick up your cross and to follow Jesus. That's the image of saving faith. Step one, believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for your sins and rose on the third day. Step two, repent of your sins. That doesn't mean you, you just feel bad and ask for forgiveness. It means you cut off that hand, you gouge out that eye, you give away that wealth, whatever it, it is that's in your life that causes you to sin or to trust in anything else but Jesus. That's true faith. That's a proper response to the gospel. Believe and repent. This has been Matthew 19, 16 through 30. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Can we pray together? Father, thank you for your word. It brings life to us even when it does that work that it did for this rich man. When, when Jesus... Uh, gave him the law that was painful, the law that asked more than he could give and required more than he had. Father, when we find ourselves like this rich man looking at the law, realizing that we cannot measure up, may our hearts turn to you, Jesus. Ask for your forgiveness, believe in your name, and take upon ourselves the promises you give to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the church said, Amen.